Today is the uh, first message in a new series, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And I kind of did a pre-message last week, but um, some of you have asked, how in the world did they get that message title? What, what's the meaning behind that? Let me share that with you. Um, John Orberg writes that book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And let me share with you a little bit about how that title came to be. Here's what he writes. He says, my grandmother had just gotten out of jail. She was a roll away from the yellow properties. And the yellow properties meant trouble. They were mine. And they had hotels. And Graham had no money. She had wanted to stay in jail longer to avoid landing on my property and having to cough up dough she did not have, but she rolled doubles. And that meant her bacon was going to get fried. I was a 10-year-old sitting at the Monopoly table. I had it all. Money and property, houses and hotels, boardwalk and park place. I had been a loser at this game my whole life, but today was different. And I knew it would be. Today, I was Bill Gates, Ivan the Terrible. Today, my grandmother was one roll of the dice away from ruin. And I was one roll of the dice away from the biggest lesson that life had to teach. The absolute necessity of arranging our life around what matters in light of our mortality and eternity. It's a lesson that some of the smartest people in the world forget, but that my grandmother was laser clear on. For my grandmother taught me how to play the game. Golda Hall was my mother's mother lived with us in the corner bedroom when I was growing up. She was a great-hearted person. She was built soft and round, the way grandmothers were before they took up aerobics. <laughs> and my grandmother was a game player. She did not like to lose. She didn't get mean or mad, but she still, to use an expression from her childhood world, she still had some snap in her girdle, and it was part of her charm. Grandmother was at her feistiest when she played Monopoly. Periodically, leaders like General Patton or Attila the Hun develop a reputation for toughness. They are lapdogs compared to my grandmother. Imagine that Vince Lombardi had produced an offspring with Lady Macbeth, and you will get some idea of the competitive streak that ran in my grandmother. She was gentle and a kind soul, but at the Monopoly table, she would take you to the cleaners. My grandmother knew how to play the game. She understood that you don't win without risk, you don't play for second place. So she would spend every dollar she got. She would buy every piece of property she landed on, she would mortgage every piece of property she owned to the hilt in order to buy everything else. She understood what I did not. That accumulating is the name of the game. That money is how you keep score, that the race goes to the swift. She played with skill, passion, and reckless abandon. Eventually, inevitably, she would become master of the board. When you're master of the board, you own so much property that no one else can hurt you. When you're master of the board, you are in control. Other players regard you with fear and envy, shock and awe. From that point on, it's only a matter of time. She would watch me land on boardwalk one too many times, 
hand over to her what was left of my money and put my little race car marker away, all the time wondering why I had lost again. Don't worry about it, she would say. One day you'll learn how to play the game. I hated it when she said that. Then one year, John writes, when I was 10, I spent a summer playing Monopoly every day with a kid named Stevie who lived kitty quarter to us across the street. Gradually, it dawned on me that the only way to win this game was to make a total commitment to acquisition. No mercy, no fear. What my grandmother had been showing me for so long had finally sunk in. And by fall, when we sat down to play, I was more ruthless than she was. My palms were sweaty. I would play without softness or caution. I was ready to bend the rules if I had to. Slowly, cunningly, I exposed the soft underbelly of my grandmother's vulnerability. Relentlessly, inexorably, I drove her off the board. The game does strange things to you, he says. I can still remember. It happened at Marvin's Garden. I looked at my grandmother. This was the woman who had taught me how to play. She was an old lady by now, a widow. She had raised my mother. She loved my mother. She loved me. And I took everything she had. I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her give up her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. It was the greatest moment of my life. I had won. I was cleverer and stronger and more ruthless than anyone else at the table. I was master of the board. But then my grandmother had one more thing to teach me. The greatest lesson comes at the end of the game. Now, here it is. Now, it all goes back in the box. All those houses and hotels, all that property, Boardwalk and Park Place, the railroads and the utility companies, all those thousands of dollars. When the game is over, my grandmother taught me, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. It's not bad to play the game. It's not bad to really be good at the game. It's not bad to be the master of the board. My grandmother taught me to play to win, but there are always more rungs to climb more money to be made, and more deals to pull off. And the danger is that we forget to ask what really matters. So for the next seven weeks, First Baptist, we are going to have a journey that reminds us of that truth and shows us how we should play the game to win the game in the right way, this game that God has given to us, this game of life. Because in reality, life isn't a game, but it's a gift that God gives to us. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, it says this. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all of his creation. And what that means is that God values us over all of creation, and he made us to understand 
of any of his creation that there is an afterlife. And the reason he gave us this understanding that there's an afterlife is so that we would live with that in mind. It's what I call a living with an eternal perspective. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to talk about and try to understand how the game is played. How do you keep score in the game? Realizing that there are hazards in the game and then looking at life and saying, okay, how do we know if we're on the winning track? How do we know if we're winning at this game of life that God has given to us? What does a win actually look like? It's interesting because I don't think any of us would play a game without reading the manual, without understanding how the game is played. Um, I don't know if any of you remember going to a birthday party when you were young, or maybe you've seen your kids or your grandkids do this, but they play that game where you have a string and a balloon, you blow up the balloon, and you tie the string on it, and tie it onto your leg, right? Have you played that game or seen that game played, where the, the, the balloon is off on a string, and you try to run around the room, and people try and stomp out your balloon, right? Okay, you remember that game? And the last one standing with their balloon not stomped is the winner. Well, it's an interesting game because it, it's a, kind of a survival of the fittest type of game. It's a game where you try and win, everybody else try, tries and lose. I mean, you relentlessly try and target other people's balloons and make them pop. Remember hearing a story about um, two classes who are playing this game. In one of the classes, the teacher explained the game to them, and, and these kids just went hog wild with it. They went popping each other's balloons, and finally at the end of them, one of them had won. He had the balloon. Everybody else was in tears, but the one had a great big smile on his face because he had won the game. But then there was a second class that this game was explained to. And um, this class was filled with uh, developmentally challenged children. And the game was explained to them, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, some of the details didn't quite get into their minds of how you play the game. It was explained a little bit too quickly for them to grasp all of it, but they did understand that one of the rules was that you had to pop the balloons. So let me just read this to you, because what they did is they formed a kind of balloon stomp co-op. They came together and they said, oh, we're supposed to pop these balloons. And so they would actually help one another pop the balloons. And so one of the girls tried to pop a balloon, wasn't happening. And so another one let down like this and kind of placed it there like a field goal kicker and said, here, I'll hold it. You go ahead and pop it, pop. And when it got popped, they both looked at each other, smiled and laughed and gave each other a high five. It happened over and over and over and over again. And every time it happened, somebody won. They all cheered. They all considered themselves winners. Now, think about this. They had set up a brilliant alternative scoring system. A system whereas the points, um, the students didn't keep points against each other, but they kept points with each other, where they didn't have opponents in the system, but they had teammates they were working with. People who looked like losers in the old system were winners in this. And my question as I heard that illustration is this, who's playing the game right? How do you play the game? I mean, you think about the way the game is played. For most of us, we're trying to stomp out other people's balloons. That's the way the world plays the game. But if we change the rules, 
if we made them different, if we kept score a different way, perhaps we'd all be more satisfied with the way the game of life is played. See, in reality, we are all scorekeepers. And we do it to see who wins. In Monopoly, you keep score with who's got the most money. In football, you do it by touchdowns and field goals. In baseball, you do it by runs and hits and standings and poker. It's by chips that you have. And, And in most games, players want to score as high as they can. In the game of golf, you want to score as low as you can. The English have a game called cricket. Nobody's ever understood how you keep scoring that game, but that's all right, or even why you keep scoring that game. But, but, but we crave, we crave feedback because we want to know we're on track. We want to know if we're making a difference. We want to know if what we're doing matters. And so our behavior is inevitably at achieving a higher point total. In fact, you know, you can just go through scripture and you can see person after person after person who in scripture um, kept score. All the way back to Cain and Abel. Do you remember what happened with Cain and Abel back there in Genesis? They kept score by seeing who brought the better offering to the Lord. So Abel's burnt offering found favor with God Cain's did not found favor with God. And so what happened, Cain became angry as his face was downcast, Scripture says, and he kept score by comparing his spiritual status with his brother, and he got angry enough because he wasn't winning the game, angry enough to kill his brother. Scorekeeping. I don't know if you remember the story about Leah and Rachel, married to Joseph. And in this, they were keeping score as well because Scripture says Rachel was lovely in form and face, but Leah had weak eyes. And so Rachel was the one that Jacob loved, but but Leah was the one who was having babies with Jacob. And so because she was producing so many babies, she was keeping score, was winning, and Rachel couldn't take it. And so there was this competition that developed by the end, it was actually a tie score, six sons to six sons, but then Leah scored one more because she had a daughter as well, keeping score, scorekeeping. You think about Saul in the Old Testament, and Saul was one who went out to battle and fought many, and yet when he came home from battle, the streets had a new name, the streets had a new song, and the song was, Saul has slain his thousands, which is amazing, But David has slain his, do you remember how many? Ten thousands. And Saul becomes angry. Saul then wants to kill David. You think about the twelve sons of Jacob. And you think about how Jacob favored the youngest. And you think about how the other brothers did not like that at all. Why? Because they were keeping score. He's the family favorite. Joseph. Keeping score. And then you look in the Old, uh, New Testament, and you see stories like the rich young ruler, and we'll talk about that here in just a bit, who thought that he was, he was uh, eating, drinking, making merry. He thought that he had won at the game of life. He thought he was keeping score. Score was his money, and it looked good for him. And so here's my thought on this, is that our behavior will be dictated by whatever scoring system we are hooked up to emotionally. Let me say that again. Our scoring system, our behavior will be dictated 
by whatever scoring system we are hooked up to emotionally, whatever we are driving for. And so my question is, how satisfied are you with the system that you're using? How satisfied are you with the score system, the scorekeeping that you're doing in life? In fact, let me give you some of the common ways that we tend to keep score. And so if you have your outline, you can take that out. I'm going to go in through three Bible stories. If you want to flip to those very quickly, that will help you as well. I'm going to read bits and pieces of them. Um, but the first one, that we, the first way that we keep score is often by comparing to. We do it by comparing to others, comparing to. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he uh, told stories with life lessons that we can just pick apart and learn how to play life. And so I, I wanted to look at a few stories that he told. One of the most popular ones that he told was obviously the prodigal son. An amazing story that has a lot to unpack. You probably heard the story. It's in Luke chapter 15. At one time or another, if you've been in church for a while, the story would have been teached or taught or preached to you. But here's how it goes. The younger brother wants his inheritance. He takes it. He squanders it in worldly living. Then he comes back. He says, I have been stupid. What am I doing? Let's go back to my father's house. And his father, who is anxiously awaiting him and welcomes him with open arms. And we see the analogy in that story of God being that loving father who says, yes, I'm always willing to accept any and everyone who comes back with repentance. Yes, come home. But that's not really what the story is about. It, it's part of the story. But the rest of the story, you cannot stop there at that story. Because if you did, you would miss an incredibly valuable lesson of what Jesus wants us to know. Here's the other major point that Jesus is teaching. The older brother, and we see this in verses 25 through 32, who's been obedient and faithful, begins to compare. The older brother begins to say, something's not right here with what I've done compared to what my brother's done. And he's asked to celebrate what the younger brother, now the bro younger brother is home and a party is being thrown. Look at Luke 15, verse 28 through 30 says this, he was angry and he refused to go in to the party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, uh, son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's comparing, isn't he? And, and do you know what even makes us more selfish? Understand this. We, we might not know this about the story. The older brother already received his inheritance because when it was divided up, it says at the beginning of the story, the younger brother would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. The older brother would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. The Jewish system had it set up that the older child would get twice as much as the younger child. And that had already been given to him. Kind of unfair, huh? In fact, can I just ask you, how many of you are not the oldest child in your family of your siblings? How many of you are not the oldest? Okay, I'm a middle child, so I'm not the oldest as well. We would get the one-third, right? How many of you are the oldest children in your family? Okay, we hate all of you, all right? Okay, just understand that, okay? 
Don't really like that very much, but, but that's just the way the system was set up. He already had twice as much. It was already in his possession. He was already blessed beyond belief. But when he compared to his younger brother, he became indignant. He said, I've always been here. I've always been doing my part. Listen to this. Keeping score by trying to compare will always be a losing battle. Always be a losing battle. And this story, the prodigal son, is really spoken to people who are in church. It's really spoken to the religious people. It's really spoken to you and to me that we don't get our priorities off, that we don't begin to compare. Jesus says, I've blessed you. I've already blessed you. Don't compare with others. Their blessing versus yours. And so oftentimes we kind of step out of line when we begin to compare to. Let me give you a second way, though, that we keep score. And that is by competing with. We keep score by competing with others. Again, very poignant story that Jesus tells about some laborers in a vineyard. This one's kind of hard to swallow for some of us who like fairness. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for, for his vineyard. And after seeing with the laborers for, uh, agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which was a, a fair day's wage, he sent them into the vineyard to go and to do the work, to do what needed to be done. And Jesus continues to tell the story about hiring another group of workers about the third hour, so already three hours in. He hires another group about six hours in. He hires another group at the ninth hour. And then it says he also hired a group at the 11th hour. So they hardly had to work at all. And when the payment time came, he gets them all into a room and he starts to pay the ones who had worked the least and he gives them the same exact amount as he gives the people who worked a full day's work. And what do you think happens then? The people who worked the full, day work, uh, full day's work shouted, that is unfair. What were they doing? They were competing with. They, they, were, they were looking at this and they were saying, we've done more, why are we getting paid uh, less in proportion to the amount we worked? And the owner looked back and he says, go with me to verse 13. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong whatsoever. Did we not agree that you would work for a denarius, a, a day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to the la la uh, I choose to give this to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? And then he says that word that often gets uh, that phrase that often gets quoted in our society today. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You know, competing with, competing with will always make losers. And the story here highlighting God's favor for anyone and everyone shows that God's favor is always about God's grace. And who of us deserve God's grace in the first place? And so whether we receive that at the beginning of our lives, or whether we receive it on our deathbed, 
It's God's to give. It's God's to bless. And if we come at a place of trying to compete with others, of saying, well, I should have more because of this, or I should have got this because of that, we look at God and we say, God, you don't have a fair scoring system. And God says, do I need to be fair? God says, I have blessed you. Why should it matter how I bless others? See, what sin has done is brought into the world a a lose-lose scenario. And what God's grace does is it makes it a win-win scenario. That's what we're trying to go. That's how we're helping, trying to help others, to see that. And when we get sidetracked, when we begin to keep score by competing with others or comparing with others, we're going to get sidetracked in the game of life. And so let me give you the last area that I think we often compete with or we often try and use to keep score. And that is by climbing above. Climbing above. Again, there's an interesting story. Let me illustrate this one if I could. There's an interesting story in uh, Luke chapter 12 where Jesus tells the story of a, of a man who um, seems to be climbing the ladder of life. He's climbing up the rungs, um, line, the ladder of success. And it's as though he... Uh, is keeping score, and on his scorecard, he definitely is winning in this game of life. In fact, here's what it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 17 through 19. The man thought to himself, what shall I do? I've won so much. I have so many crops. I don't even have a place to store all my crops. Verse 18. So he said this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And what I will say is, soul, relax. Soul, eat. Soul, drink. Soul, be merry. He climbs the ladder. In fact, we can call it the ladder of Ladderville. Because he says, whoever gets to the top of the ladder, that's the person who wins. And today, I have to be real honest, First Baptist. We live in a society that is much like that. We live in Ladderville. And some of you are living in Ladderville right now. Some of you have lived there all of your life. You've done it in your education and you've striven, uh, drove yourself to a place where I'm going to be the most educated person so I can have the best job that there is available. You've done it so that uh, uh, you'll work the hardest jobs. Maybe some of you are working overtime to have those jobs. Some of you are, are in the midst of Ladderville as well by way of saying, you know what? I can't even put more money in the offering plate because that's going to keep me from getting higher and higher up into Ladderville. You know what scripture says about that? Look what it says there in verse 20. Jesus says, you fool, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? He was keeping score by the wrong point system. And that's exactly what climbing up ladders does for us. Climbing up ladders elevates ourselves so that other people are lower and makes us feel like we're higher up. 
So let me ask you, how are you keeping score? You keeping it by comparing to or competing with or climbing above? See, climbing above elevates yourself, but it lowers other people in your mind. In fact, let me read to you what the greatest passage on this teaches. The way God keeps score is out of Philippians chapter 2, and it's summarized with one word, and that word is with humility. Humility. Look at the verses out of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Let me kind of break this down for just a bit. Those words, who being in very nature God, I mean, that is at the top of the organizational chart of the universe, being God himself. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In fact, what he did is he gave up his right to have his own way. It says, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, becoming a servant for mankind, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How? Born in a stable. How can you be any lower than that? But he did. It says here in scripture that he became not only one who was born like us, born in a stable, but he became obedient to death. And death wasn't even the lowest rung that he went to. It was death on a what? Death on a, on a cross. I mean, folks, imagine what that truly means. The God of this entire universe sat up in heaven and decided he loves us so much that he would come down the ladder to us and became obedient to his father up in heaven. Jesus did become obedient to death, not only death, dying death, a sad death. It was death on a cross. See, the problem with spending your life climbing up the ladder is that you will always go right past Jesus because Jesus is always climbing down. Let me say that again. If you are climbing up the ladder of life, you will miss Jesus because he is climbing down. He's going for the demotion. He's not going for the highest prize. He's becoming demoted in the world's eyes. And ironically, the moment you look like the biggest loser with the way the world keeps score, that's when you become the biggest winner in God's eyes. Look at the verse there in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. So let me ask you, how are you keeping score? What kind of a scoring system are you on today? Comparing to others? 
competing with others or trying to climb above others. The scoring system that God gives to us is one of being humble, of showing humility in life, of putting others first. And so here's my parting question to you. Whose scoring system are you playing by today? See, one day when the game is over for you, there will only be two marks up on the scoreboard that will matter at all. And those two are this. What was your decision for Jesus, for or against? And what did you do with, Jesus, with what God gave you? That is all that matters on the scoreboard of life. What did you decide about a relationship with Christ? For or against? And what did you do with what God gave you? The first question will determine where you spend eternity. The second question will determine how blessed you will be. And the rewards that he will bless you with. And so my prayer is that we would live our lives every day by that scoring system. Not a scoring system of comparing to or competing with or climbing above, that we would be experiencing a scoring system of receiving Christ in our lives as he has come down the ladder of life, and then we would take whatever God has blessed us with. And as we travel around the game board of life, that we'd be using it to bring others into a relationship with him. That's all that What else is in your rule book? What other rule book have you been reading? What other scoring system have you been using? I pray if you've been using other scoring systems, that this time in your life you begin to say, nope, I'm going to do this differently. God, I'm going to do it the way that you have taught us to do it, the way of humility, the way that says, Jesus, it's about you and only you. Amen? Let's pause for a moment. Let's pray. And let's just use a few moments to kind of get our minds focused upon the correct scoring system that God has uh, laid out for us to begin to play by. Let's pray. God, I, I do pray that as we have entered into a series talking about the game of life, that we would understand how we've been playing the game. That we would understand that perhaps um, the way that the world plays the game is drastically different than how we should play it. That we would understand that um, when we compare our lives with others, when we compete with others, and when we climb above them, God, it's just the opposite of what you would want us to do. That we would be the, the, the people that you've created us to be, God, that we would be in union and that we would be in fellowship with you and that fellowship would drive us deeper into a relationship with you and that that fellowship, Lord, that fellowship with you, that decision to receive Christ into our lives would cause us to live this life differently. It would cause us to elevate you and cause us to take the demotion. That it would allow us to serve others even as we become in touch with how you would have us live in serving under you. So folks here at the 8 o'clock service, I, I know that there are many of you who have 
been in a relationship with Jesus for decades. Decades. Let me ask you, can you honestly say you've been playing the, the game the way God wants you to play? Or have there been things that have just been kind of off? Is there, does there need to be a reprioritizing? Does there need to be a different way of following the rules? Lord, if there is, would your Holy Spirit just speak to us now? Would your Holy Spirit show us how to live differently? God, over these next couple of months, as many of us will be in community groups and many of us will be studying these lessons, I pray that we would come out as different people. I pray that we'd be people who follow the call of Christ in our lives. I pray that we'd be people who understand what it means to make a decision for Jesus and that that decision means that all of life is lived differently. Lord, I thank you for the victory that is found in you and only you. May we not keep score by the world's standards, but may we keep score by your rule book. Lord, if there be a time and a place in our lives this week when that has not been the case, would your Holy Spirit convict us and may we be obedient to how you direct us. God, thank you for leading us through the game of life, that we do not play it alone, but we play it with you. And when we come to the end, may our scoreboard be filled with points for your team, for what you want to do in our lives. We love you, we thank you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.